You're listening to Reggie Miffo and the Count. Hello and welcome to Australian Gothic, a podcast about Curse Australiana. And you're at a picnic to the lovely park known as Hanging Rock. Uh, you're accompanied by your lovely young French teacher and dancing teacher and your crabby old maths teacher. And there at the picnic with you is a radiantly beautiful blonde girl looking at some flowers with a magnifying glass. Uh, everyone is in awe of this girl. Uh, everyone, including grown adults, talk about how beautiful she is, which is a little weird. She's not Josie or me. Uh, next to her is a very pretty brunette girl uh, who is known for her wealth. It's like The Rock was waiting for us, she says. Anyway, she's not Josie or me either. And next to her is a a girl with glasses, and that means she's smart. But don't worry, she's also like blonde and pretty. Anyway, she's not Josie or me either. As the camera pans across the scene, you see a chunky girl shoving like a fistful of cake into her mouth. Uh, the movie really makes sure to draw attention to this. That's us. That is Josie and me. Josie and me are both Edith. Hell yeah, I am. Josie, how are you enjoying being Edith from Picnic at Hang Rock? Okay, real talk. I know that like, I know that that's like, haha, the fat girl eats cake and is like annoyed to be on a bushwalk. Um, that was me before and after my weight loss surgery. So <laughs> where's the lie? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's true. Not saying, yeah. Anyway, no, no. Look, I, I am also probably that kid. I, I am getting curious about going like camping and bushwalking and stuff again because I used to. It occurred to me I was in the Air Force cadets. I went on camps. I kind of hated it at the time, but I did enjoy it. And I don't know. I reckon as an adult, I could probably do like a more chill version of it. Like I don't know. Yeah, we climb a mountain, but maybe there's like a bar at the top. <laughs> that sounds sick. Yeah, yeah, they have uh, sick wine, and I don't know, like, I, I'd do that. Giving me ideas. <laughs> okay, so this episode, we're going to be talking about the movie Picnic at Hanging Rock. But before we get into that, we're going to do some housekeeping. There will be a timestamp in the show notes if you want to skip past our just general gas bagging and skip straight to the topic of this episode. 18, 18 minutes, minutes 45, 45 seconds. seconds. So, Lucas, since we last recorded, a lot of cool and significant things have happened in our lives would you like to begin since yours is objectively like the biggest uh yes yes my my wife and i had our second baby uh i know i i sort of foreshadowed this a few episodes but uh our son was born on june 12th he came two weeks earlier than expected and it was wonderful unfortunately he did have some health problems and so he has been in hospital the whole time Everything seems to be okay now, but uh, as as I imagine a lot of people could expect, uh, it's uh, extremely fucking depressing and despairing when your when your newborn has to go to the NICU, uh, sorry, mm. the neonatal intensive care unit. As of recording, he is coming home tomorrow. Everyone seems extremely confident he is coming home tomorrow, uh, and he looks great. He's extremely happy. He is a funny little bubba and feeds voraciously. When he gets mad, he calms down. When I talk to him. Maybe I'm just more Aww. aware of that because, I don't know, I don't know if my oldest child necessarily responded to that. But, uh, but no, it has, been an, it has been an unusual three weeks. Uh, I have been grateful, extremely grateful for the podcast and its community for giving me something to work on as a distraction. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. we, are, uh, we are very excited to be uh, proud parents of a little baby boy and uh, we're very excited to get him home tomorrow. Hell yeah, dudes rock. <laughs> and I mean that in like the best way for once. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but yes. Congratulations. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, what about you? You've you've also got some cool news. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. Yesterday, I handed in my last piece of assessment for my degree, which I've been working on for a really, really long time. Like getting a degree in general. I wrote a whole thing about it on my Twitter the mm-hmm. other day and how much it means to me. And yeah, I um, am so excited. I'm about to go into a master's of research, which actually I probably will bring up what that will be about later in this episode for reasons. In two days time, I'm actually going to be heading to Ely Beach in the Sundays for a week's holiday. My first time visiting the Great Barrier Reef. I'm so excited. We'll be with loved ones. And then I come home for a week. And then a week after that, um, more family has gifted us a trip to Port Douglas, which is further up, about midway up in the Great Barrier Reef for um, a week. So I'm so excited. Very, very fortunate and lucky. And it's all sort of come at once. And yeah, it's really cool. No, that's, um, that's so fucking yeah. cool. Congratulations. I, I <laughs> Thank saw, you. I saw that you submitted your... So this is your like bachelor's degree and you're going on to do a master's, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, Bachelor of Justice. Um, my major is in criminology and policing, which gets like those two words get like <laughs> the most annoying responses because first of all, some people will hear criminology and they'll be like, oh, cool. So you're going to like know the minds of murderers, like serial killers. Cool. And I'm like, absolutely not. Um, I'm interested in victimology. How we talk about victimization is much more interesting to me. Um, I'm, you're not going to catch me uh, making a Ted Bundy podcast anytime soon. Um, sorry to disappoint. Sorry, I'm policing. Sorry. To- <laughs> sorry. No, sorry to everyone who was waiting for our like spin-off murder podcast when we finally decided to just like cash in and just be become shits. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then yeah, the policing part would be like, oh, so you want to be a cop? No, no, I can tell you all the ways that no one should want to be a cop. Um, <laughs> which, by the way, reminds me of how the other day Queensland announced that they're gonna let. 17-year-olds enroll to the police academy and invited literally every 17-year-old to apply um, to become cops. So, cool. I, I cool. remember I remember being on Twitter for that. I remember seeing your, you, you know, because I follow you, um, seeing your, like, reaction to it and just being like, Jesus Christ, who the fuck thought this was a good idea? Have you met 17-year-olds? Have you met, like, the worst 17-year-olds? Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Fuck. And it's like, it's been interesting because, I mean, at the moment we're getting still like people who haven't developed their frontal lobes, you know, entering into the police force anyway. But like, I was looking at the comments and like, it seemed that even like pro cop people were just like, this is a fucking dumb idea. What are you doing? Like, I was like, yeah, this is pleasing no one. (laughs) Yeah, they're just, uh, is it just that do you reckon recruitment is like down so low due to you know the very real and hard to ignore calls for like you know police abolition that they're just like ah fuck we gotta get like we gotta get bodies in here like yeah they literally say they need needed boots on the ground which you might know is a term 
<laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the term boots on the ground before, but that's usually talking about fucking war. So, um, yep, yeah, yep. very cool. <laughs> I could rant about it for ages, but it's literally just an attempt at indoctrination. I'm sure it serves as like a deflection of other shit that's going on. I think it serves several, several purposes. I wouldn't be surprised if they get rid of it because it is this this state government is particularly prone to making decisions based on the public, which can be a double-edged sword. Sometimes that can be good, you know, if they stopped asking 17-year-olds to be cops, but it also can be bad in that they're also looking into appealing the the sentence for a guy who accidentally killed um, some people in a hit and run as he was in, he was, as he was committing a crime. Uh, he was 17, from my understanding, and they're trying to get... Yeah, that's a whole thing. Sorry, this uh, weirdly ties into the the hospital where uh, where my wife and I have been like visiting our son daily for the last three weeks. We have to pass by where the couple he killed died, where that, where that incident took place, and there is a big sign, a big monument uh, that sort of like draws attention to the incident. So, yeah, like I am, I am acutely aware of that. Also, the couple who died were basically like my wife and I a year before, like when they died. I know. Like, you know oh my gosh. So like when that incident happened, I was like at work and I was just like, I'm thinking of going home because I'm fucking depressed. Like yeah. I'm thinking of yeah, telling no. my manager, sorry, I can't. Yeah. It, I mean, it's objectively tragic, right? Like I, that, you know, and by me believing that they shouldn't give a child or someone who was a child at the time, a larger sentence doesn't detract from that. Um, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, I guess the next thing I want to talk about is we did get a response to last episode's question about whether or not Foghorn Leghorn would have enslaved people or sounds like he would have. Most people said yes, like absolutely 100% without a doubt, but someone actually gave us a bit more insight into the creation of the character Foghorn Leghorn, which totally took me by surprise. Listener... Jacob Vardy replied to uh, our tweet on uh, for our last episode. They said, Since you asked, Foghorn Leghorn is based on the Mark Twain persona of Samuel Langhorn Clemens, an exaggeration of an exaggeration. Clemens enlisted with the Confederacy because everyone else did, deserted months later, supported the Union, and was an anti-racist activist later. So I thought that was like interesting insight because... Yeah, as you said uh, in response to that, Lucas, based Foghorn Leghorn, <laughs> yeah, which was, that was not... <laughs> yeah, that was so not what I expected. I just expected, like, okay, yeah, like, the Reformation in the US, like, never happened after Civil War, so they just have, like, all Kentucky types, like, you mm-hmm. know, all Southern gentlemen types, and, you know, that's just, like, okay, that's just a voice that... Oh no, the famous voice actor. I can't remember who did the voice of all the Looney Tunes characters could do. So they were just like, yeah, he can be the chicken. But uh, that's, that's what <laughs> <I> tell. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. That's sick. It, I had to resist diving into Looney Tunes lore um, after that. Um, was there anything else you wanted to chat about before we get stuck into the episode? Yes, sadly. I forgot what a piece that was originally going to be a uh, cold open. Um, Sorry, Josie, uh, I'm going to come up with a segment sound for this, but uh, I'm going to give you a Bluey Wiki update. Bluey Wiki update. Okay, oh no, what's going on? What's going on? Okay, so what triggered this is uh, now, and especially helpful since I've given everyone background on, you know, what's happened with the birth of my son and his time in hospital, um, a new season of Bluey came out. I found out... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
partially, you know, just from my daughter watching Bluey on TV and also like on Twitter, um, a bunch of parents I follow on Twitter were talking about an episode from the new season of Bluey that is meant to be like very emotional. It's an episode called mm-hmm. Onesies. Everyone was just like, oh, this episode is really sad. It had me in tears. I decided to go to the Bluey wiki to just like find out what was happening because I was in a kind of delicate emotional state and didn't want to be like, yeah. Well, didn't want to be bawling my eyes out over a children's cartoon, particularly one dealing with, uh, you know, little kids. Uh, anyway, the premise of the episode onesies is that Bluey's estranged aunt comes to visit for the first time in years. And uh, the reason she's estranged is because uh, Bluey's aunt, Brandy, who is uh, her mum's sister, uh, is unable to conceive children. And seeing her sister have, like, this family and children was, like, too painful. Aww. So she was estranged. When I looked at the wiki, the episode had been out for, like, a day. So this was, like, the reactions I was seeing were, like, fairly live. So the wiki had not really been updated. There was no synopsis for the episode. It was, like, coming soon. It was just, like, this episode deals with, like, themes of infertility. And then then I watched the episode. And the sequence where you find out that Brandy is, you know, unable to conceive children is beautifully done in a way that like is going to go over is going to go over kids heads but like you know as an adult you're going to look at it and be like oh fuck like as i as i did it's like it's brandy the aunt like wrestling with bingo like bingo has put on this cheetah onesie and is like pretending to be a cheater and is like attacking the family while and is like wrestling with brandy while bluey's mum is like oh, you know, she can't have children. She, you know, there's something she's always wanted, but she just can't have it. And there's nothing anyone can do. And as this voiceover happens, Bingo like runs off into the house and we see from like Brandy's point of view, her like hands reaching out to Bingo as Bingo gets farther and farther away. It's it's excellent filmmaking. It's fucking devastating. I feel like I want to watch this just on my own. <laughs> fucking hell. So anyway... I, I look at the wiki, I, I go into it knowing this. So, like, I'm affected by the episode, but not as badly as I would be. Um, but I go to the wiki and I was just, like, just out of curiosity, just out of sick curiosity, I go to Brandy's <laughs> character page. Oh, no. This is her first on-screen appearance, and the episode okay. on the wiki doesn't even have, like, a character synopsis. It's still being written. But uh, we're just going to go straight to appearance. Oh. She is a red healer with light orange, brown, and cream fur. She has cream feet, hands, eyebrows, back spots, right side of the body and head, a strip in her shoulders, right arm and tail end, light orange back, knees, start of the tail, inner ears, and forehead, and brown left side of the head and outer ears. Okay. Are you able to see what maniac is doing this? There can't be more than one. It has to be the same person who's just straight onto it. Yeah, just who, stri- straight. Who's doing this? It must be a person in Australia. I don't know if it's like simulcast in the US, but the fact that she has an appearance section when the episode she's in doesn't even have like a full description is mind-boggling. But further to the, to our investigation, someone in the Australian Gothic uh, Discord actually highlighted that the way the appearance was set up, the way it's like written, is very similar to how furries describe their OCs. I knew it. I knew it. I don't know if I said this in the last episode, but I knew it in my bones. I knew it in my bones that it was a furry who was doing this because no one is that fixated on the uh, like appearance of a cartoon animal. I fucking knew it. Sorry. 
continue. No, no, that's all I had. So anyway, when when the person in the Discord, I can't remember your name, I, my apologies, gave me that explanation. I was just like, good Lord, that's perfect. And anyway, this just cinched it. Just me, me trying to like brace myself for an episode that might like affect me emotionally because I have kids now uh, allowed mm-hmm. me to discover that yes, people on the Bluey Wiki are like, are possibly perverts. Not that there's anything wrong with being a furry. It's fine. It's fine. It's not always sexual. I will defend the furries on that. It's not always sexual. It's still weird. I have many furry friends. I know that some furries listen to this podcast. I love you all. You're allowed to do it. I do weird things. You do weird things. (laughs) It's fine. I just don't want to see it. (laughs) You just have to repress it. That's the healthy way to deal with this. I'm kidding. Don't, Don't repress it. And I don't know. It's it's fine. It's funny. Sexual. It's 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 amusing. Like it's literally like. But this is the thing: is that it's like so not sexual. It's just descriptive, and I love that. Like <laughs> I I in re- like real talk, I do know that like there's just someone that this is their particular interest, and like they've figured out how to describe. I guess animal characters. They know what they need to detail, and they've got a really effective way of describing it and no okay i won't say all knowledge is useful i won't say this i won't say look this is not unuseful i'm just trying to dig myself out of this hole (laughs) it's 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 a bit odd to find this in in a kid show in like a very popular kid show yes like okay yeah but also like i don't know i casting big making big assumptions here but it does sound like this is someone's particular jam and like this just is like this is the thing that they do i hate the expression yuck your yum it sounds gross but okay like this yeah I don't know. it's it's fine this person does this i guess and they are like preparing the wiki but it's still it's it's odd it's odd, but I do find it amusing. And also I find it amusing yeah. reading it to you on our show. Yes, exactly. I think it's the immediacy for me. <laughs> it's incredible. Like, the last one was funny. But this one is like, oh, you're doing this as soon as the episodes drop. That's fantastic. Well, look, Way more one... on their ball. Yeah, This one seemed oddly restrained compared to, like, the, the Bluey's grandpa one that we read out in the episode. So, like, good on them. Maybe they're reining it in. Maybe the editors of the wiki are back and forth and it's just like, <laughs> hey, remember that all these characters are, like, rectangle dogs that are just meant to abstractly look like cattle dogs. So, like, come on, man. <laughs> there's, a, there's now, like, been a style guide implemented for, like, the, the fucking editors of the Bluey wiki. Oh, Amazing. God, probably. <laughs> Anyway, today we are discussing uh, the other seminal work of Australian Gothic, uh, certainly literature, but in this case we're focusing specifically on the film, uh, Picnic at Hang Rock. In my head when I was conceiving the podcast, I was like, we have to kind of tackle these two before we go any further because it is such a perfectly Australian Gothic film and it so captures the themes that we explore in this podcast. So I guess as a loose structure, we will go over the plot of the film, but we will digress at points when certain things stand out. It is an unusually paced film. Uh, Everything kind of happens at the front and then like the echoes. Fallout, I guess. Yeah, the fallout of what happens uh, really happens throughout the last like hour of the film. So I guess uh, let's start with like a Josie, what's your... Well, we should start with our experience of the film. Josie, what's your experience of this film? 
So Picnic at Hanging Rock, I literally had not heard of it until you suggested it as a um, as an episode. So that's something it shares with Wake and Fright. I know that a lot of people I know have seen it. Um, I did a little bit of Googling, not too much before I watched it. I did see that it grossed, like, I guess in modern day, like in Australia, it grossed like $26 million. Wow, um, yeah. Which is huge, like, I, I feel for Australian cinema. I was quite shocked that I hadn't heard it, but also, like, it's way before my time. But yeah, last night I went ahead and watched it with my husband. He fell in and out of sleep, but I managed to stay awake. I <laughs> really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can see how, while they're quite different, Wake and Fright and Picnic at Hanging Rock, there are definitely some through lines which I will talk about sort of maybe after we go over the plot my immediate thoughts and this is without sort of needing any context of the plot um because I'm sure we'll go over that my first notes were wow cottagecore vibes so much sexual tension very gay second film where the gay is repressed but present um, those were my initial, that's like within the first few minutes. Yeah, sorry, uh, my first note, I know it's the 70s, but these underage characters are weirdly framed as sensual. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, like, like you've said, weirdly gay, very sexually repressed. And yeah, I, that only just occurred to me that that was a through line with Wake and Fright. But yeah, the start of this film, uh, is the girls all waking up. It takes place at the Apple Yard, uh, school for girls. It is a, like, private school finishing school for girls where you know they go to get educated they learn about maths and shit like that but also because it's like the 1900s they're really just learning how to be like you know housewives they do like knitting classes they learn french they learn how to be like proper ladies so that the second they graduate they can like marry some dude and start having kids i'm quite certain at one point one of the teachers is like sorry i have to go teach senior needlework or like advanced needlework or something like that which as someone who loves textile art and will defend the utility and the artistic virtue of textile art is fine but like it just I don't know. It just really tickled me. Be like, sorry, I have to go teach senior needlework. It's like, oh, I know what this, what school this is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the start of the film is all the girls kind of waking up to Valentine's Day, and from what I can tell, because at the start I could tell like, what the fuck, all these. This is like a Victorian all-girls school, and they're all giving each other Valentine's cards. Like, yo, that's real gay. But a Apparently from a historical context in sort of (laughs) maybe Victorian society, it wasn't necessarily weird. And from what I've read of uh, Picnic and Hanging Rock, the book, you would just give Valentine's Day cards to everyone. It wasn't necessarily a like, I'm attracted to you kind of thing. Because Mm -hmm. even, even, even in the opening scene, Edith, who again, this is the movie's framing, not mine, is the annoying fat girl, is like sitting on the bed counting off like 11, 12, 13. Like those are the cards she's getting. So just everyone is getting these cards. But like one person in particular who is getting cards is Miranda. Yes, Miranda. Um, Yeah, so I guess I'll jump in here and be like, totally agree with you about how weird the framing of these, like, I don't know what the age of the actors were, but they're, explicitly teenage girls 
um, below the age of 18. And they're like very much. Perfect makeup. Perfect makeup. Sexualized. Waking up and their faces aren't, they're not all creased from pillows. They look like immaculate when they're waking up. Like very much a purity thing. They're all dressed in like the most beautiful white dresses as well. Mm, mm. Uh, we will go into the purity thing a little bit later because there's something <laughs> I noticed and I'm curious to know if you picked it up as well. But uh, yeah, they're waking up. They're looking longingly at each other. They're giving each other Valentine's cards. They're help- They're strapping up each other's corsets. And I know, I understand that corsets are in some cases a fashion item. I understand they're also like a kink item and that is a modern thing. That wasn't always what they were used for. But it's still really hard to not be like, oh, come on. They're like strapping. The way they frame it. Yeah. They're doing, they're they're doing like a corset train. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like human centipede, but for corsets and they know it. Like the, whoever, like the cinematographer, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, look, I should say this, uh, this movie was made in 19, sorry, was released in 1975. So probably made in 1974. I sort of looked up specifically um, the sort of three key actresses for Miranda, Irma, and Marion were all would have been about 17 at the time. So... Uh, And I don't even want to think about what our age of consent laws were. Not that that matters, because, like, obviously it doesn't matter. Don't look at, like, fucking girls and sexualize them. But, like, yeah, it's... I can't help, I have never watched Puberty Blues or read Puberty Blues, but this feels very much like of a time where the, I mean, I guess it also exists in Hollywood as well, but it's like definitely like this coming of age sexual, like, okay, this is weird. I just realized something. Mm -hmm. There is nothing actually explicitly sexual in this movie, but it feels very sexual. There, there is a scene we'll discuss later, like us when the movie gets weird, which is like when it gets really cool. And I wanna, I wanna address your husband falling asleep because I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing in a movie. But uh, if a movie is like cool and chill, but uh, yeah, there is definitely like a very sensual thing. Again, I came back to texture because like Wake and Fright in our episode we discussed had this like grimy, mucky, sweaty texture. And in the scenes when they're out in nature, you don't get the sense that the girls are sweaty, but you definitely, this goes into the sensual thing as well, you get a sense of their touch, that they are, like, hot from the sun. There's a scene yeah. where, like, one of them is dancing and it cross-dissolves to, like, one of them taking off their stockings. And, you know, the intent is very clear. Yeah, and there's, like, everyone is fanning themselves and, um, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, very warm sorry i guess quickly like uh, sexual politics in the 1970s were were complicated it was you know i am not an academic i am not a queer scholar but from what i can tell it was a it was in some ways a good time for recognition of like gay and bisexual people they gained more visibility uh it was also sadly a time of like look just to just to frame it around a certain public figure david bowie was like famous bisexual you know gender fluid rock musician and famously, according to the groupie Laurie Lords, like, had sex with 14-year-olds. Yeah. And this is something that happened. It wasn't just him. There were other rock stars who did it as well. Um, people at the time treated it like it was fine. In In the last 10, 15 years, there's been this reframing of, like, uh, sex and who you should be having it with and the ages of who you should be having it with. Uh, I think people in the modern era would just be like, dude, that's fucked up. 
uh, as part of that sexual revolution, which had good sides, that was kind of like the one yucky part of it. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and making a film- Nonces fil- will nonce. Yep, yep. And one thing I want to say is that uh, Peter Weir is a fantastic Australian filmmaker. He directed this. There were points where during... Let me know if I'm talking shit and nonsense. If you told me a woman directed this, if like a, a queer woman directed this, I would have been like, oh, fuck yeah. Yep, yep, absolutely. This feels, this doesn't feel male gazy. Um, necessarily. To some degree. To some degree. I, I think, or, um. Or at least not as like crass male gaze that we're used to in a no, lot of cinema. No, um, yeah, I haven't actually thought about that too much. And, and maybe yeah. maybe it's just because, like, yeah, as we get to later on, like, oh, we just see, like, a, ki- a girl's knee with, like, a stocking being pulled down and then one of them just, like, dancing and swishing on a rock. Uh, it doesn't feel mm. as, like, crass and gross as, say, like, Megan Fox, like, leaning over a car and, like, her ass is sticking out. Like, no, that actually reminds me. One of the things Robert did say, and it was, like, in... Su- <sighs> It was sarcastically, but at one point, one of the men in the film says, oh, look at the figure on that one, on, like, one woman. Uh, one girl, sorry. And then it sort of goes to a shot of her, and she's wearing this very floaty dress. And uh, Robert sarcastic, sarcastically said, haha, look at the gams on her. Like, he literally couldn't, like, <laughs> she was just in a floaty dress. This but very, it was like This very otherwise, like, pretty modest outfit very modest i would argue yeah and they'll but they were still like oh yeah like well well, that that dudes will rock dudes will rock well certainly that character bertie and then very famously he is accompanied by another character called michael who is like a british lord and he's just like oh i don't feel that way about these things and that character bertie says like yeah you just think these things i say them out loud and uh do you know do you know the actor who plays bertie yeah, do you think we should, like, move a- along in the, the pl- plot before we talk about Bertie? Yes, yes, I do yes, have let's do that. Okay, so cool. Appleyard College, they all wake up and they're, like, doing very kind of, like, almost queer-coded stuff. Uh, <laughs> there is there is a key interaction between Miranda and Sarah. Miranda is an older girl. Sarah is meant to be a bit younger. Sarah is, like, brunette. Sarah is not going on the picnic and she's watching Miranda in the mirror. Miranda is kind of talking. It's like, oh, you must come to Queensland and our property. And then she kind of gets, the conversation turns a little bit somber. She's just like, Sarah, you must learn to love someone who isn't me. And it's and it very much sets up that like Sarah is, it's, it's hard because like in a lot of, this is meant to be sort of Victorian literature. When they say shit, like you must learn to love someone, like it's framed as companionship, but it's like very mm-hmm. clear that like, Nah, Sarah might might be like attracted to you and like into you, like fixated on Miranda. Oh no, hundred percent loves Miranda. So they all go downstairs and they do like weird little Saint Valentine's dances with like the statue. And then Mrs. Appleyard, the stern matron, tells them all that they're going, you know, to celebrate Saint Valentine's Day. They're going for a lovely picnic at Hanging Rock, and it's still homework. They have to do a fucking essay when they go to school on Monday. And, you know, they're not permitted to climb the rock. But when the carriage goes past the village, they may take off their gloves. Uh, this is framed as, like, February in Australia. So it would have been hot as shit. Oh, my God. So 
so and they are again wearing these like big flowy muslin dresses and corsets so that that's not how you dress here if you don't live in australia that'll be no. that'll be re- deeply uncomfortable in the no, bush that w- fucking swamp ass for days my god yep Yep, so so anyway they, they get in the carriage, they're accompanied by their very their young and kind of like excitable French and dancing teacher, uh, Madame de Poitier, and their stern maths teacher, Mrs. McGraw. And uh, they go there and Mrs. McGraw kinda has this like kind of bitchy back and forth with the coach driver about how old Hang Rock is. Uh, the character Irma has this like wonderful line where she says, sorry, just looking at my notes. She says it kind of playfully, but it's also, like, very, like, colonial. It's like... And quite young, geologically speaking. Barely a million years. Waiting a million years. Just for us. I can't remember the formation of Hanging Rock, but it was, like... I don't know if it was a lava plug or something like that, but it was like certainly volcanic in nature. And um, yeah, it was very, very, very old. And then, yeah, there's this colonial like waiting thousands, millions or thousands of years just for us. Like, yeah, that's... But then again, you know, considering the way a lot of people have read this film is like, yo, was it... When we get into like the supernatural considerate, mm-hmm. you know, theories around the film, it's just like, yo, is the was the rock? Yeah, is the rock actually? Maybe waiting it was. For them? Is there is the rock itself an entity? Like, you know. Yeah. And that's getting into the the the, the very good amount of like you know nature and colonial theories about picnic at Hanging Rock of like. I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Victorian culture, getting. There's been a few readings of this film, and I've been meaning to try and find. You know, I co- I can't find it, but uh, the show Get Kraken, uh, made by Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney, who made the catering show, very funny piss take of like Australian breakfast TV, did a skit, a very biting sketch about Picnic at Hanging Rock, and about really yeah. I've been trying to find it. It really stuck with me. I've been trying to watch it again. Uh, it's it's the two comedians dressed as the girls from Hanging Rock doing like all the floaty dancing scenes like oh our beautiful white bodies against the rock and then at the last minute an indigenous comedian leans in and it's just like the implications they were killed by indigenous people like they were and you know just really leaning into the clash of like the smashing of like repressive Victorian culture against the untamed Australian wilderness and also the wilderness as this like I will talk about this after we get through the plot, if that's okay. Okay, okay. sorry, sorry, we'll rush through. Sorry. No, 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 don't be sorry. I'm just so excited, but I have, like, so much to say that I can't wait to hear more of your thoughts about it. But, yeah, it requires more context, I think. They arrive at Hang Rock. It's lovely. Uh, they have a big picnic. There is a wonderful tracking shot that goes over the whole, like, picnic party, and you see, like, all the schoolgirls, like, doing different things. It tracks over Mrs. McGraw looking very, like, like she's got a stick up her ass, as usual. <laughs> you see Edith just, like going to town on some cake again edith like is listed in the dramatis personae of the book as a dunce so like her whole role here is like the meg from family guy she is ralph wiggum she's ralph wiggum if it seems like we're being overly harsh on edith like nah that's how she's portrayed so yeah justice for edith only only difference is that edith got valentine's and ralph only got one from lisa they they cho chose her like yeah not ralph (laughs) that's right (laughs) So, so yeah, tracks across, like, all of our key players. Madame de Poitiers, the French teacher, is, like, reading books, and they're, like, you know, 
they're doing like nice lady shit. They're talking about like high art and geology and stuff like that. Tracks over to Miranda, who is like lying on her stomach in a shot that almost reminds me a little bit of like Lolita, uh, where she is like lying on her stomach using a magnifying glass to like look at some flowers. She looks very like pixie-ish and again, ethereally pretty. I'm probably going to overuse that phrase. We see Irma and Marion and they're talking a bit about the rock. They've been instructed that they're not allowed. They're allowed to like enjoy the picnic. They're not allowed to actually explore the rock because probably because that's not probably for safety, but also that's not what proper young ladies do. But uh, eventually uh, Miranda uses her charm. Like Miranda is not only like the top shit queen bee cool girl of like the students. Like she has this sway over the teachers and we get like, as Miranda convinces uh, the two teachers, like, hey, let us go explore the rock. She, Irma, who is the rich kid, uh, Marion, who is the smart girl, um, the three of them are all, like, very conventionally pretty by the movies and, and set up as conventionally pretty by the movie anyway, but, like, that's how the book distinguishes them. And then Edith, who's just like, I want to come too. They convince the French teacher to let them explore the rock, and as they leave, Madame de Poitier has some interesting dialogue where she's just like, oh my... Miranda, she is like a Botticelli angel. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Yeah. And I know Mrs. McCraw gives her this look of like, what the fuck? And I know by the, movie's framing, <laughs> by the by the 1970s movie framing, it's meant to be like, look at this fucking prude. She doesn't think the 17-year-old girl, the child, looks like a Botticelli's angel. But watching this, I was just like, yeah, that's exactly how I'd look if a if a mate of mine who was a grown adult was just like, "Yo, this chick is hot. This this seventeen year old hot." This is a bored like, chilly angel. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What the fuck, dude? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. I might pause right here. I think this is a good time. Um, I did want to ask you, how acquainted are you with Twin Peaks? Um, I, I keep meaning to watch it. I keep getting about three or four episodes in and then getting distracted. I loved what I've seen so far. Okay, because something that I noticed, I won't get too into it, but like something that I did notice about this film and, you know, I'm not saying that Twin Peaks and the, the main character, Laura Palmer, were directly or only inspired by Picnic at Hanging Rock for other reasons I'll get into later. But like, okay. yeah, I, I did notice that there were a lot of Twin Peaks vibes in this movie. So like, first of all, you have a blonde missing teenage girl who everyone can't help but be in awe of in one way or another, where it's that's romantic or like through friendship or just like, I don't know what this is, but I am so smitten, swayed by this girl. Yeah. And yeah, my next note was like, yeah, one of the teachers calls her a fucking Botticelli angel. And the way that Laura Palmer is described in Twin Peaks, everyone in town knows her, loves her in some capacity, if not in love with her. Miranda in Pitney and Hanging Rock, Miranda's roommate Sarah says that Miranda had secrets, which we'll get to later. Um, mm. And that she, she knew she wouldn't be coming back. This is something, I guess, I don't want to spoil too much about Twin Peaks for you, but, like, um, a huge thing is that Laura had secrets. She kept so many secrets about her own life, um, which you can read more about in the diary of Laura Palmer. Um, and in that book, if not in one of the seasons or whatever, she sort of knows she's going to die. So you kind of have... Miranda in Picnic and Hanging Rock having secrets. We don't know what those secrets are. 
um, and mm-hmm. she knows she won't be coming back. And then you have Laura Palmer, who has the same. And I guess just to sort of finish off that thought, you also have this will tie into like when we talk more about like colonialism and and the space in Picnic and Hanging Rock. But in Twin Peaks, you certainly have this um, like the woods are this um, ancient and mysterious magical presence where people disappear or reappear. That's the same in Pitnick and Hanging Rock is that it's sort of this like ancient and magical place. Um, Sorry, just to peel it back with the Botticelli Angel, the tie in with that with Twin Peaks is that like in Twin Peaks, the return or like the third season, you see that Laura Palmer is like, kind of implied that she was like basically birthed as an orb of like angel like goodness oh which is like which yeah and and if you know that and then think of how miranda is portrayed it's like it's hard to not see this through line right but yeah and also like uh, in picnic and hanging rock you see that the disappearance and presumed death of this girl or girls causes so much hysteria to the people in the film but also in both Picnic and Hanging Rock and Twin Peaks, you also come to learn that the fractures, like there were always fractures just beneath the surface. Yeah, and that's it. That's all I had to say about the Twin Peaks thing. Um, no, that's that's incredible. I read a very good essay that uh, likened, you know, drew parallels between Picnic and Hanging Rock and the film The Virgin Suicides by Sophie Coppola, where, again, we have these ethereally beautiful characters whose whose secrets and whose deaths mm-hmm. absolutely ruin the people around them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating that, yeah, that's, that's never a parallel I ever would have, ever would have drawn. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I was freaking out. Um, Bob Robert was asleep about it. Um, <laughs> and yeah. There's... But, but also, sorry, but as I'll get to later, like there, there is actually like, there is a trope of the missing white girl. So we also see that also picnicking at, at hanging rock, are this like very stale looking like Victorian couple. There's like a dude in basically a piff helmet with a monocle. They are just like kind of sitting there basically asleep. They're accompanied by a dude who could be like 16 or 30. Uh, This is Michael, Michael Allcroft, I think his name is. Oh, the dandy lad. The dandy lad. And he is like walking around. He is just like, oh, auntie, I think I might go for a walk. And again, we get our second mention of like, okay, but watch out for snakes. It's like, you know, again, there's this, there's this, thing that like victorian england is this grand thing but like goddamn watch out for the snakes like they are you get the sense that colonialism is like not only repressive but brittle like oh yeah and you know gets absolutely again smashed by you know the wilderness of hanging rock or like whatever it is at hanging rock he goes walking around he meets up with birdie who is basically like the coachman like the worker and birdie is having beers birdie is played by baby john jarrett oh yes so you asked me if I recognized the actor. Would you like to go first? So did, did did you were you straight up like that's John Jarrett? No, no, I didn't. I didn't recognize him. And I've seen young John Jarrett in films and in play school, but I was just like, what the fuck? That's John Jarrett. Holy fuck! He was in. Okay, he, was he in play school? Yeah, that was his like one of his big roles. He was a he was a play school presenter. Was it? Is he? Robert said speculated that he was married to Noni Hazelhurst. Is that yeah, true? he was. He was a, a play school, then Better Homes and Gardens. Uh, he was in a ton of stuff. And then Wolf Creek was this incredible, like, 
holy fuck, the play school presenter is playing like this incredible serial killer is now like that's oh, amazing. Is now like a canon horror villain. Like, well, yeah. So I recognized him straight away. I like freaked out, but I didn't know why. Now that I know if he like he had this, like I watched play school every day as a kid so which i'm sure will be an episode in the oh, future absolutely. Yeah. um fuck play school's so good but yeah robert was like oh yeah no you recognize him he's in wolf the wolf creek movies and tv show and i was like oh yeah and then i like before this episode i just gave him a quick google because i didn't I still didn't feel like that was right like i definitely recognized him from when he was younger and i realized i know him from the 1978 film bluefin have you ever watched bluefin no, what's that? I don't know how many people have fucking watched Bluefin before. It was like one of our few VHS tapes um, that I was allowed to watch. So I watched it to death. It's like, I did put it on the list for movies I'd love to talk about, but it was just like a bunch of like Australian dudes on like a tuna trawler and the drama around that. And I think there's like a, there's like a boat accident as well. But yeah, so he was... Yeah, in that film, and that's where I reckon... Like, it was deep in my brain, his his baby face. Um, but then, yeah, I, I gave him a Google. He was in the... As we said, he's the main antagonist in the Wolf Creek movies and TV series. Fucking terrifying. And But he's also been in a bunch of other stuff that I haven't watched, but probably our Australian listeners would recognise him from, like, A Country Practice and McLeod's Daughters as well. He is almost worthy of his own episode because just of how, as producer of this podcast, I, I'm considering doing episodes on individual creators. Peter Weir would almost warrant one as well because mm. we are also going to do Gallipoli. Someone suggested another Peter Weir movie that's, like, quite significant and, like, good in terms of its impact on Australian cinema. So... So look, we're going to navigate that as we go along. But yeah, John Jarrett is one of those, one of those uh, actors that has been in like damn near everything. This scene is basically an, another undercurrent in the movie. We see this like back and forth between like posh Victorian like sensibilities and not working poor, but like the working class Australians. Like Bertie, mm-hmm. John Jarrett's character Bertie is again like the coachman and is like going to clean up. And he's just like, oh, you're here. Are they finished? Do I need to go clean up? Because he's like cracking a beer and he offers it to Michael and Michael's like, oh no, thank you. And he's just like, <laughs> okay, whatever. And that's when they first glimpse uh, Miranda, Irma, Marion and Edith crossing a creek and trying to do so very daintily without getting their shoes and their like nice muslin dresses wet. And this mm-hmm. is where we get the pervy line of like, yo, check out the blonde one's gang. The figure and, on her, yeah. Yeah, yeah this, this chick who was like wearing this fucking huge dress, like check out her ankles, like. Yeah, exactly, because that's literally all you can see. But apparently that was enough for old mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazing. It's at, um, it's at this point, sorry, I missed a, we missed our first trippy shot. There is this wonderful, like, I don't even know whether to call it, like a cross dissolve or like a double exposure of like lorikeet screeching and flying over the sky and Miranda looking around. And this is also in the picnic scene that like, where we see like the shot of all the girls, like in the, the tracking shot of all the girls, we see, we start to hear the rumbling. Mm. During the scene, we hear rumbling and we're just like, oh, that's, that's just the wind. And there is a point where there is a, there is a wonderful shot where we see very clearly that it's not the wind. There's just rumbling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. I did see, I, I didn't get a chance to read them, but there were multiple like academic papers on like, the sound design of this movie which i think is pretty cool it was like yeah the soundscape of picnic at hanging rock was like 
is worthy of study in itself, which I found interesting because I didn't even notice. I was just so engrossed in the film. Uh, we we get to the point in the notes that I label uh, filmmaker porn. Uh, we, start, <laughs> we start to, my notes say, 70s Australian soundtracks with Eerie Synths are S tier. Uh, again, there is a reason why the, the intro to this podcast is like an eerie, something approximating an eerie synth because... We just fucking love that in the 70s. Or, like, certainly Peter Weir loved that. I love it now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also get this amazing 360 shot where we see the girls making their way up the rock and it, Mm. like, shows them starting to walk up and then, like, pans to the left, shows the rock, shows the trees, shows everything like that. And then when it gets back to them, they're, like, way further up the rock. Going back to you mentioning your husband falling asleep, this is a very, like, even though this has scenes that are like horror and suspense, it is a really calming film at points. So even mm-hmm. though even though he went to sleep, like there were moments... I had to watch this in sessions due to things going on in my life um, in the last three weeks. But also like just having the stamina to watch it because I was just like, oh, this film is really good, but I'm just so relaxed now. I could go to sleep and I'm going to miss it. Like, <laughs> It is a bit like a dreamscape. And in fact, one of the themes that happens at hanging rock itself is that people go to sleep and wake up again just for apparently no reason but now that you say that and like robert sort of made a passing comment be like oh yeah i think it's okay that i fell asleep and woke up i think that could also be a way of viewing the film uh, (laughs) in some weird way i guess was his his comment but it just reminded me um especially with like the synth vibe um i sorry Beyond the... Beyond the Black Rainbow. I was going to... Yes. That is a movie... Sorry, it's funny because I was thinking about that because that's a movie where I also... It's a weird horror film with lots of synth, like in this case, very 80s inspired. But uh, when I watched it at home by myself because I knew my wife would not be interested in Beyond the Black Rainbow, um, I I had moments where I was just like falling asleep and I was just like, this is kind of nice, but I am watching a film. (laughs) Do I need to pause it? Uh, I went and saw it at like New Farm Cinema um, Two Bit Movie Club held like a double feature of Beyond the Black Rainbow and like another movie I literally watched the first 10 minutes and fell asleep <laughs> and I woke up right at the end so that like that sort of synthy horror like don't don't Trippy. be a sleepy lady yeah it's great like I listened to the the soundtrack for Beyond the Black Rainbow all the time um, because it's so relaxing but yeah it's Make sure you've had like a Dex or like you've had your Dex or like uh, have a coffee with you because it's a bit of a chill time, weirdly, um, for both Picnic at Hanging Rock and, and this ilk, I guess. If you ever want to feel like a spooky little guy doing like arcane experiments in a lab, chuck on the soundtracks for Beyond the Black Rainbow and Picnic at Hanging Rock. <laughs> Just love to be a spooky little guy. Just, just being a spooky little guy doing like weird kind of rapey experiments in a lab. Sorry, you miss you may have Whoa! missed that part. You may have missed that I part. I did, of the film. I did. I was asleep. I was so asleep during that part because I probably would have run out of the fucking cinema crying. Uh, oh, 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 look, look. He he dies. He he gets what's coming. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right, I did see where he died, so that's pretty cool. I didn't know why he deserved it, but there you go. Got it. <laughs> we, we'll watch it again. I'm so sad I missed that. Screening by the Two Bit Movie Club. It was yeah, I love that movie and I love Two Bit Movie Club, but that's yeah. dad life, sadly. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So, so they get to the top of the rock. At this point, this is the first time I noticed that Edith is dubbed. Uh, and apparently this was a thing. Oh god, no, yes she is. No one no one knew it for years. Apparently it only became like a big deal in like 2010. They were just like, yeah, the actress Edith who was obviously dubbed. And I noticed because her mouth isn't moving. Like they've reached the top, they've reached the rocks. And Edith is having a big whinge about like, these stupid old rocks, why can't we go back? Like, And meanwhile, like Marion, Irma and uh, Miranda all just seem kind of like they're hunting for something. Like something has really mm. drawn their attention and they're saying weird shit and everyone is sleeping. Oh, I forgot to mention that like the first sign that something weird is going on is that everyone's, everyone who has a clock, it stops exactly at 12. And everyone's mm-hmm. just like, oh shit, what time is it? Like, have we been here for two hours, four hours? Edith is whinging the whole time. Edith seems unaffected. Edith is also meant to be like 14. So like the youngest of the characters. So maybe it's like a, you know, maybe we're going to get into some like weird, like womanhood shit with that theme. Right. And at this point we get more hallucinatory scenes and probably like the scenes we were talking about earlier. Uh, Irma starts like dancing on the rock. Like she is backlit by the sun like in terms of cinematography it is more like filmmaker porn because it is just like beautifully composed shots and you know when she moves we get like lens flares from the sun you know her dress is blowing in the wind miranda is like asleep and looking angelic and then waking up and like it's cross cut between the two of them it's sort of like i interpreted it as like oh no oh she's watching irma and maybe there's something like almost there's a longing there and then we get the shot of like Miranda taking her stockings off and they've been instructed that like, you know, you know, they were told they could maybe take their gloves off. So the idea of them taking their shoes and stockings off is, uh, would be like, what the fuck? As a queer person, I'd, I'd love to know your take on these shots in this scene because it read to me as like, oh God, this is like quite, you know, scandalous for the characters in the film. But like, yeah, yeah. What did you think? What did you make of it? Honestly, I was geeking out so hard at the um, at like the, the the connections I was making with Twin Peaks at this point <laughs> that I like totally forgot about gayness. <laughs> I will say, you just reminded me though, in terms of the queerness of the film, I don't know if it was intended, but at the start when Sarah, the girl who is roommates with Miranda is told that she isn't going to the picnic. There's this really, like, jittery teacher at the school. And she says, oh, you're not going to the picnic? And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not. And then she's just like, yeah, neither am I. And But there's, like, this weird lingering thing that I don't know if oh. you picked up on that. No. It felt very gay. I, oh. Again, maybe I'm reading into it, but it was just, like, a real weird thing. I I don't know. It just felt weird to me. Look, backtracking a little bit, we get we did uh, fail to discuss a scene where like Sarah is at the school and is being like grilled by Mrs. Appleyard, who's you know the the headmistress, and it's just like, hey, you didn't learn the poem, what the fuck? And she was like, no, I wrote my own poem. And it's like implied to be about Miranda, and there is this there is this weird like, and this is other academics like writing this, not just me being like a weird guy. Uh, people have said this is there's this weird like dom sub thing going on between Mrs. Appleyard and Sarah. Like Mrs. Appleyard kind of treats Sarah poorly and seems to like fixate on her, and that's and it's given the whole repressive Victorian vibe. It's mm. odd. It's very weird. Lots of weird vibes. 
Mm, mm, Victorian yeah. era, never again. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of like on Hanging Rock itself, I sort of beyond that point, it didn't feel entirely gay to me, but I also wasn't thinking about it. So, look, uh, not to deviate too far again, there was a music video that came out a couple of years ago. Of, actually, I think it was last year by the band Moona called Silk Chiffon, which is very, very gay. Very like, this is a song by a woman about a woman. And a lot of the mm-hmm. cinematography from that song seemed from the music video, uh, which, you know, again, framing like the female gaze looking at females you know watching picnic and hanging rock is like this reminds me of that music video there's lots of you know dresses blowing in the wind low angle looking up at a woman dancing yeah it was just like okay yeah this is the female gaze and this is what made me think like it's odd that a dude directed this because like this isn't typically you know again like my theory that this isn't typically how like a dude would frame this if they wanted it to be like horny like yeah that's interesting yeah, I, 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 sorry, I don't have any more to like comment on that. I hadn't. You were doing Twin Peaks shit. Was, I was doing Twin. <laughs> I was off doing Twin Peaks shit. Yeah. Mm. But at this point, we get to like the key incident in the film. Shit's getting really weird. Uh, at this point, we see that the rumbling is not in fact the wind. Like the movie makes it very clear. Like all the girls at the site are sleeping, except for the math teacher, Mrs. McGraw, who is like reading math series, and she looks up. The rumbling is, like, super intense. And we see that the trees are perfectly fucking still. So it's not the wind. And no, to this day, no one really knows what that is. We start to hear, like, weird distorted bird noises. Then we get... Uh, sorry, I didn't go into my background of, like, having seen this film. Because I'm someone who watched a lot of films about, like, Australian history and Australian film history. I've probably... This is the first time I've watched the movie all the way through. But I've probably, like, seen this movie just in snippets. And there's Mm. one scene in particular that's in every documentary about Australian filmmaking or even Australian history. And that's the scene where the girls actually disappear behind the rock and Edith starts screaming. Yeah, that's the most fucking terrifying one. So yeah, like you hear the rumbling and yeah, you see three, the three thin girls start to disappear behind the rocks and Edith is saying Miranda 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 we have have to do our obligatory Miranda oh my gosh yep and but it it, oh she does this okay I know screams aren't like the property of Twin Peaks but she does this scream that reminded me too much of um a scream that Laura Palmer does uh, in the most (laughs) recent most recent series it's just like it's just one of those screams that feels so fucking real and authentic that it just like makes your blood turn cold yep yep and the next shot is like this aerial shot of like edith running down the peak by herself just like running in terror and i remember seeing this scene as a kid like in you know a documentary about film history and like being viscerally frightened by the scene because it's like they can't hear her anymore and then she's being abandoned on this place that is clearly invoking some sort of sense of fear. Like, she's fucking terrified. And it makes you terrified. I don't know about what you felt, like, why you felt so scared. Oh, maybe it was just the screaming and just the hallucinatory nature of the scene. The fact that you can't see their faces as Ooh. they're going behind the rock. Like, they're just Creepy. Like, yeah, it's very eerie. Also, I guess uh, be- right before this happens... Uh, I had a note that, like, they're looking down at the other girls and then, like, Marion, the, who is meant to be the smart one, is saying, like, look at them. What are the points of their lives? She's saying all this, like, cryptic shit. 
that is meant to sound like really eerie and like oh no it feels like some sort of like maybe they're possessed they're saying like eerie stuff at the same time they are just saying like weird edgelordy shit that 17 year olds probably would have said like <laughs> oh yeah 100 percent. and maybe that's why that didn't clock with me because i'm like yeah i said some wanky shit too and it's like what are the point of their lives just like yeah tina 17 year old me also thought he was like a fucking mega genius and like knew everything about life and existence but uh, but yeah exactly but yeah this moment this is only about 30 minutes in sorry the rest of the film is like fairly laid back after this i promise this won't be a three-hour podcast um uh so the three girls have disappeared uh edith finds uh, finds the rest of the group and it turns out mrs mcgraw the teacher has also disappeared like the stern mm-hmm. like stick up her ass teacher is also gone the fallout of this is basically the rest of the film uh they try to find the girls um sarah is of course devastated that her like that her senpai miranda has disappeared <laughs> yeah P- picnic yeah. at hang rock is anime sorry everyone <laughs> mrs appleyard is just like oh fuck the reputation of my school um they do a police investigation um edith is investigated by the doctor and this is a weird motif that comes back again later the doctor uh is very quick to point out that edith is fine and that she's quite Quite intact intact. yeah like it's like it's gross i got so fucking creeped out i think robert was asleep when that happened because like i turned like i like went (laughs) because like yeah i think that miss appleyard or whatever was like was she molested and he's like no no she's very much intact or quite intact and i've inspected her and i'm like you fucking sicko. I, I made, don't worry, I made sure to look at this chick's vagina to make sure she hasn't been, like, sexually abused or, like, you know, just had sex at all. Because that would uh, ruin her value as a commodity. You could just ask her. I suppose she was, I guess, I, well, she was hysteric. And that's not an excuse, but, like, I'm just trying to think it through. Um, it, it occurred to me, like, I didn't note this, but, like, if she had experienced, like, sexual assault, surely she would have said something. Like, oh, I don't know, she would have mentioned... Or, like, you know, no, I, was atta- no. I was attacked by a man. Like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe this is me, like, missing shit, but yeah. No, I, sadly, I don't think that that's true even now. Uh, um, yeah. But you should still care for someone and give them space to disclose that to you. But there would have been... I also imagine there would have been fears that you'd be judged if you were you know, sexually assaulted. And so they kind of just sexually assault you anyway, or medically assault you, I guess. We gotta Um, gotta make sure that your value as as a dowry bride has not been spoiled. That's a whole fucking thing in and of itself. But yeah, I'm glad you caught that because it was just one, it was just like one sort of brief interaction, like two sentences. And Mm. yeah, fucked up. But yeah, so the rest of the film is about that and multiple attempts to find them. At one point, they find one of the girls because Dandy Lad Michael or whatever his name is, I don't yeah. remember, insists on going up because he's fixated not on all the girls, mostly Miranda. Yeah. And yeah. he wants to find her. And he goes up this mountain and was it was it Michael or old mate Wolf Creek that found a birdie. Emma. Bertie finds Irma. What happens is, uh, actually, there is this weird motif. There's, like, sort of a party where Michael sees a swan. And, you know, we get, like, basically a cross-cut between, like, Miranda and a swan. And it's clear that, like, Michael 
is like associating this motif with the swan with Miranda and he goes to Birdie who is like his confidence just like I'm gonna go up the mountain and Birdie's just like mate what the fuck are you doing like come on there's already like cops tracking like don't fucking go up there anyway Michael still just goes up there by himself I think like Birdie goes to check on him and we get the other like jump scare of this movie which is Bertie finding Michael and he's like got this mysterious cut on his forehead he gets the cut very mysteriously he has like a dream okay. sequence I want to talk about this. Yes. That's what I was about to say. Like, when Michael goes up Hanging Rock, where he inevitably finds Irma, there's, like, this literal point where one second he's, like, more or less okay, and then the next second he's, like, falling to his knees. It's like there's this force that doesn't want him to go up this rock or this, like, steep part of the mountain. And then, yeah, as you said, he gets this cut on his face and you don't he's starting to be bruised or like all of a sudden he's bruised and you don't really understand why also um, also yeah. it seems like he hallucinates a lot of the previous scenes and that's the only way i know that like that's the well they repeat some of the dialogue from earlier because and i was grateful for it because so much of the dialogue in this movie is like whispered or delivered in victorian accents so it's like kind of kind of hard to pass but they repeat you know marion saying like look at them sleeping down there what did their lives mean like uh you know, he gets like glimpses of that and then because i went back and played it back it's a they do a match shot where like he's lying on the ground kind of tripping out it goes in and out of focus and when it comes back he's got the cut on his forehead and so it's just like yo, yo what the fuck is happening Oh, I had noticed there were like a few things that they repeated, but I, I guess I was, yeah. I My notes specifically yeah. say, okay, yeah. I'm glad they repeat the dialogue because bug it if I caught it the first time. Yeah, no, that was basically it. I'm like, oh, they're just reiterating it. Like, they're, like they want me to take note of that. I didn't think, I didn't even consider that there was something else weird going on with like time or you know state of mind or whatever going into this film i know one thing i heard for ages about the cinematography of this film and they were like man the camera like is constantly looking at the rocks and after a while you start to see faces and at this point yes. I believe about an hour in i started to be like oh yeah fuck yeah there are faces in these rocks like maybe it's to i'm not sure if the idea was like put in my head or no i had that and i didn't even read that okay cool so at this point you you saw them too <laughs> Yeah, I think it was deliberately shot in a way that, like, whatever part of that, you know, you know how human brains tend to, like, find faces in things. Um, mm. Yeah, I definitely saw that at that point. Yeah, so that's cool. That's really cool. Um, I did just want to bring up, this is, like, towards the end. Like, I only have a few more points just from my own sort of thoughts before. I did, w I did one academic reading because, you know me, I have literally no chill. <laughs> so I've got... This is like the, the last section for my notes. But what I was thinking, or like what I noticed during the, um, the police searches is that he, he appeared at least twice and I deliberately looked out for how many non-white people were in the film. And there is one, one, one non-white person. One indigenous uh, tracker, yeah. One in a fucking pirate costume. Do you know why he's in a pirate costume? I, I did wonder... Yeah, do you know? No, what what was that? No, I literally, I, I, I do not know why he's in a pirate costume. I, I don't, when, when we say pirate costume, it's kind of like a red 
coat that's open i almost thought like an english soldier in like the american war of independence it's he's possible. wearing like an odd hat you know i'm just going by another peter weir film uh rabbit proof fence that uh indigenous trackers did have a uniform oh i, I mean it was more like a police uniform but like they weren't yeah, yeah. they weren't expected to like maintain it they could i believe in rabbit proof fence that's that's oh. beloved late beloved actor david Golpalil. Uh, no, you're totally fucking right. I just googled it. Oh, okay. So, so With they the had triangle hat. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I. That's crazy. Yeah, no, you. That's probably why the tracker is dressed in what's what looks like a kind of pirate costume compared to like what the other police are wearing. Yeah. Holy shit. Um. Yeah. I'll send you a link in case you want to like. Oh, thank you. I'll add it to the show notes. Yeah, holy shit. That's it. Like, if you see, like, that picture is exactly holy it. Holy shit. It's, it's unusual. But yeah, obviously in the film it was not pristine. As you said, there, it was just like, here you go, here's an outfit, you're on your own sort of thing. Because I think the expectation was, like, a lot of these trackers would be, like, going deep into the bush where, like, you know, most white people would be just, like, totally lost. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, nah, man, you can wear, wear it however you like. Not that they were treated yeah. particularly well. Like. No, um, but it did make me think, and I sort of, I read more about this later, but like one thing that I, it made me think of is like, you know, there's this huge unknown element of Hanging Rock, which is like expressed through the disappearance of the girls and like this magic or like, you know, this unknown rumbling and everything like that. And it just, just like, hey, actually like, I mean, I know that this is a, this is, obviously supposed to be supernatural or magic but i'm also like hey maybe like did any of them even like ask any mob who were on the land like <laughs> hey what the fuck is up with this rock <laughs> like but i'll sort of talk about that a bit later um i guess the one last thing before like we get into like i feel like there's even more geeky shit to go one thing I do want to note, so the film the film kind of continues like that. None of the other girls besides Irma are found. There's this, right at the end of the movie, it sort of comes to a head where because of the damaged reputation of the school, uh, all these parents are pulling their kids out and um, they're not getting the funds to stay open. And you find out that Sarah, who is in love with Miranda, she's an orphan. And you sort of make the connection that Sarah and Bertie um, were a brother and sister who had grown up as orphans in a um, orphanage in Ballarat, boarding school in Ballarat. And um, loop back to that in a second. But then, yeah, so basically the the headmistress tells Sarah that, well, actually, like, your legal guardians aren't paying for your tuition anymore, so I'm sending you back to the orphanage. And then you see this smile go across Sarah's face. Ooh. And then eventually which is just haunting to me. And then you find out, like you see that she, I guess the implication is that she jumped from the roof because we did see her on the roof earlier, like at the start of the movie. Yep. And and she jumps and she dies by suicide. I don't know if this came, became, this came before or after, but Birdie talks about how his sister came and visited him the night before in a dream. Ooh. Which is fucking... I got goosebumps even talking about that. Um, And then... uh, Yeah, and... Then there's, like... They go and inform 
is it like they go to try and inform the um the headmistress about this and she's already sitting there in like morning clothes yes yeah and then it goes to by the way we were i feel like we were both using the director's cut which uh omits a final scene where like mrs appleyard a shot a continuous shot of like mrs appleyard just like sitting there wearing like basically a funereal kind of veil and then voiceover says that mrs appleyard's body was found at hanging rock and the implication is like was she drawn there by the supernatural element that was there did she go there to try and like search for search for the missing students and she fell did she commit suicide because like you said she's telling sarah that like oh your fees are gonna be are not gonna be paid first it starts off as like i'm cutting off your extracurricular activities you can't do dancing you can't do anything like that you'll have to just like stay in bed and then it's like your fees haven't been paid i'm gonna have to like send you to an orphanage it's hard to tell how pained by this miss appleyard is Mm. Uh, she clearly starts to have some sort of breakdown she after having this conversation with sarah she starts crying it's unclear whether she's crying about like having to like crush this kid or because like her her little empire is starting her little posh school barracked against the wilderness is starting to crumble Mm -hmm. she has has this very awkward dinner with the french teacher where she's clearly getting like way too pissed and talking about like Oh, how wonderful my late husband was. Um, In the scene where she starts crying, there is this wonderful montage of like a shot of her as a younger person, a shot of her as of her late husband, and then a shot of Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, oh yeah, your little empire is like starting to crumble in the face of the unknowable Australian <laughs> wilderness. Oh yeah. And before I, we, I talk more about the unknowable wilderness... I found it interesting that this movie in 1975 was talking, like, made references to... Well, well, first of all, we do see in one point that because Sarah allegedly has poor posture, she's literally strapped to a board in front of all the other girls. All the other girls don't seem to find it to be a problem or don't talk about it. And it's really distressing to see. But then they don't bring it up again. But then they also, like Sarah and Birdie, both talk about this Ballarat orphanage or boarding school. I just found it interesting because the institutional abuse was seen briefly at this, like, you know, even at this seemingly prestigious college, but also the acknowledgement of, like, the fucking rampant abuse at the Ballarat orphanage that Sarah and Birdie came from, like... For them to even talk about that, I found it interesting because everyone behaves like, oh, well, we only really knew about this. We, you know, we had the royal, like, a bunch of fucking commissions into it and investigations into it over the past few decades and probably even in the 70s as well. But, like, the fact that they even mentioned it in the film sort of took me by surprise. And I I guess I just took a lot of interest in that. And it's weird... Okay, so there's like this weird thing where it's like, I don't know if they were bringing it up to draw attention to it or if it was like, well, that we all know about it. We make a brief reference to it. Mm -hmm. But then also it is of consequence because she, it seems like Sarah would literally rather die by suicide than go back to that orphanage. And yeah, I guess this is where like in dad chat, I said I'd bring up um, like my master's project because my master's research will be, mapping the pedophile network of the Newcastle diocese uh, sorry the Anglican diocese of Newcastle oh wow um, but 
Yeah, but, <laughs> ooh, fun. A lot of my work will be drawing off this, I guess, yeah, it was like this, this one of the first mapping projects, possibly the first, yeah, it was the first pedophile network mapping project done by a PhD student at QUT. And she mapped the pedophile networks in Victoria, which were largely in Ballarat, using like documentary evidence through the Royal Commission and, and other court cases and stuff like that. And yeah, like even without that knowledge, like I think Cardinal George Pell, I believe he was in the Ballarat Diocese of the Catholic Church. Like that was part of his jam for a while. So it's like a hot spot of abuse and not just in the Catholic Church. This happened, in, this happened all over Australia. So it shouldn't surprise me that they brought it up, but also I'm just like, oh yeah, you're just saying it. Holy shit. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, I just, it's just, again, kind of like the intact thing is just something that I'm like, oh fuck, this is like alluding to so much dark shit about the colony, mm-hmm. even over the course of like a few sentences. So that wraps up my initial thoughts. Before I talk about, like, I feel like you can probably expand on the paper that I'm talking about a bit more, but um, the paper is talking like about the spatial politics in like Australian Gothic um, narratives. But yeah, if you had anything else you wanted to add or any other thoughts of the movies, like go ahead, of course. Oh, okay. Uh, we we kind of forgot to wrap up Irma's plot because she is oh, shit, uh, yeah. <laughs> Bertie. Uh, firstly, he finds Michael, sees that like he's all fucked up and it's just like, oh God, what happened? Uh, Michael gets like ferried away in like a makeshift ambulance. And then Bertie, who is like intrigued by like, hey, why did my mate get like so fucked up? And like, look, it was like we get a big jump scare when like he finds Michael and Michael looks like he's seen some shit, and it's just like oh god, what what has he seen? And he inve- Birdie investigates further and he finds Irma, and Irma is like has been out in the bush for a week, but seems like weirdly fine. She's not wearing shoes, but her feet aren't all fucked up. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get the other instance where the doctor says like, don't worry, quite, quite intact. intact. Oh, I didn't notice he said that about her too. He he says it like twice because he says it like Gross. once to the cop and then again to like she's quite intact, she's quite intact, like to like a bunch of people as she's leaving as he's leaving the house. So it's just like, don't worry, she's safe. Next thing, I must let you know that like, don't worry, nothing, nothing gross has happened. But and I made sure to like check this comatose kid. Jesus Christ. Yeah. This Irma's survival, like every. The kids are initially happy, but then Irma is, like, pulled out of school. And again, like, this is evidence that her family is rich. She appears before, like, the rest of the girls during a dancing class where, again, Sarah is, like, lashed to the wall due to her bad posture and also because she can't afford to do the dancing class. And Irma is wearing this, like, wonderful red, like, not velvet or, like, silk kind of, like, hat and gown. You know, the French teacher brings her into the class. It's just like, hey, girls, don't you want to, like, say hi to Irma? And the girls are all kind of like, why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you telling us anything? And they all, the whole class breaks down in this like savage crying, screaming Mm -hmm. grief explosion almost, but also like anger at Irma because Irma woke up and doesn't remember anything. Like has no idea what happened to Miranda, Marion and Mrs. McGraw. Like has, just has, and is like deeply distressed by it. But yeah, this is kind of like the final straw for the school. Like, the sort of nebbish teacher who, you know, seems to have a thing with Sarah, like, resigns after this. And that's a further sign that, like, Apple Yard is falling apart. To be clear, I don't think she has a thing with Sarah. I just, there was, like, a weird tension. 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant by the weird tension. Not a, oh, not sure. a, not a weird thing. Air quotes. But uh, yeah, it's it's further evidence that things are falling apart. That like Irma leaves and everyone is like clearly upset that she knows nothing, and uh, that's what triggers Mrs. Appleyard and the Appleyard Institute to increasingly fall apart, and eventually like her death and no one knowing what happened to uh, Miranda, Marion, and Mrs. McGraw are never found again. No one knows what happened at Hanging Rock. That just makes me think that whole response to not knowing seems to be like apparently a lot of people got so mad at the film when it came out because it doesn't explain what happened. Yes. Like they just they never found again. And yeah, like apparently like someone like threw their coffee at the screen, like one <laughs> of the distrib- distributors or something like that was so mad. So yeah. furious, which is amazing to me. Because, yeah, I, I love that shit. I love when it's not answered. It makes me so cross, but there's nothing I can do about it. And there's a, there's a piece in that. Yeah, yeah, there's something wonderful. It's like, yeah, were they, was it UFOs? Were they gobbled up by, like, an inscrutable and low-key malevolent wilderness? Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you talk about uh, of this piece that you examined but uh yeah that was that was picnic at hanging rock um it is a really good movie please watch it if you're listening to this before watching it this like what the fuck are you doing what the fuck are you like, doing go that's weird i mean go watch it because there's plenty of stuff we didn't cover anyway like a uh, legendary australian actor jackie weaver is in this as well and young jackie weaver uh can kill me with a rock uh she's very pretty sorry it was how old was she in this film oh like in, she would have been in her 20s or something like that i believe she's like 70 now <laughs> don't worry it's it's fine to say that jackie weaver in the 70s is hot okay okay just 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 making sure don't don't worry she's uh, you, in... you can't you can't pay, play it fast and loose with this film is, is I, what I know don't, don't worry don't worry uh yeah don't worry you i have not committed thought nonce so it's all good <laughs> nonce of the mind so anyway (laughs) there were so many different readings of this film of course but i read a 2009 paper by elspeth tilly titled the uses of fear the spatial politics and the australian white vanishing trope basically tilly begins explaining how cartographers of the 14th century added mythical creatures to their maps for a number of reasons one of which was to signal anxiety and uncertainty in the spaces beyond imperial dominion. And this, of course, included the land that we call Australia. The paper sort of goes on to argue that in contemporary Australia's dominant non-Indigenous culture, the ghosts of these fearful creatures remain. Tilly goes on to explore the recurring narrative trope in non-Indigenous texts that uses spaces of fear and disappearing whites. The disappearing whites trope involves a character going into the bush, the difficult, uncivilized wilderness with episodes of crises and struggle to survive. And it was at this point that I realized that, like this point alone, although to different extents and emphasis, that this vanishing or disappearing white um, almost applies to Pitnik at Hanging Rock and to Awaken Fright, because mm-hmm. you, he does have like the whole trying to get back. Like not only is the town of the Yabba hostile to him but on his way back he really struggles uh, like trying to escape or whatever anyway tilly examines a number of texts but turns to picnic at hanging rock both the novel and the movie adaptation to note that there's a dichotomy between like the deliberately designed explicitly human regulated settler space and the incomprehensible disordered space of the bush 
the bushes explained as seething with poisonous and venomous flora and fauna, and looming above is this mysterious ancient rock formation that is somehow tempting to the white settlers. This unknowable yet somehow tempting nature beyond the controlled settler space is a through line in like the white vanishing trope. There's an assertion that the settler project depended on establishing and reinforcing these binary views that include settled and unsettled space, where settled space is symmetrical, orderly and safe. And if we look at just even the structure of the school, like the college, it is a box, like it is symmetrical. The grounds are symmetrical, beautiful manicured it's an it's an italianate mansion in the middle of the bush yes it like doesn't belong there but it's like trying to enforce empire onto the yeah 100 percent. beyond the finite settled space is that of the haphazard infinite and sometimes even described as like slovenly bush like across different texts and basically whether consciously or not like this white vanishing trope which is found in Pitnick at Hanging Rock, underscores the preoccupation that the settler colonial state of Australia has with defining itself through the creation of and continuing the repression of the other. I have a few thoughts. It's like, of course, in this movie, there's some weird stuff going on in terms of like, maybe there's a portal or something else magical occurring. But in reality, we do look at the natural landscape like this, like as a place that is unknown and unknowable, but people have managed to live on this continent for 60 fucking thousand years. It is not unknowable. Perhaps if we didn't displace the people who developed knowledge of this land across thousands of years, we would try and copy paste this imperial idea of what it is to be civilized, then maybe we'd fucking know where we are. Also, when like your comment before, like I didn't realize that there was an implication or like it could be read that there's an implication that these girls were killed by indigenous peoples. Even just reading like the disappearing white trope, it's sort of this controlled safe space with something tempting in it. It, it reminds me of that whole trope of like, which I obviously fucking disagree with of like, you know, white pure virginal white like white girls um being Mm -hmm. tempted by and preyed upon by the beastly black man and for non-australian listeners indigenous peoples identify as black that's what yeah i'm not saying that that's like a legit reading i don't i'm i'm very new at trying to like garner meaning and understand different readings of media but like putting that white vanishing like the disappearing white trope and this weird thing of temptation oh my god sorry it just fucking occurred to me it also is like a weird the settled space is like the garden of eden like it's controlled and everything is like as it should be and then there's this tempting poisonous thing um that corrupts or yeah changes things i don't know sorry i might i sound i know i might sound very wanky but i'm just like there's so many ways to like view this film it's really cool i i guess i i come down between like two different things and thank you so much for providing uh you know getting us getting us this text because that that really sums up the anxiousness under this film because like Joan Lindsay, who wrote this book, um, purposely left the ending ambiguous, refused to explain what happened until, like, after her death, she released an extra bit uh, of the book that goes into, like, Area X Jeff Vandermeer kind of shit, what? which is, like, 
remarkable. Yeah, like the Mrs. McGraw turns into like a crab people. What? And uh, takes takes Miranda and Marion into like a time rift. It is described as like a rift in space and time. It's wacky. What the fuck? That sounds and... so cool. You gotta point me to how I can read that. Yeah, look the look the picnic at Hanging Rock is probably more intriguing. The publisher excised this last chapter on the first book, and you know what? The book is probably better as a yeah, result, yeah. even without the weird fiction stuff. She purposely left it ambiguous. She was just like, "Well, what do you think? What do you think happened? What does it mean?" She like leaves it to the viewer. So, so Josie, do you think is Picnic at Hanging Rock an expression of colonialist anxiety in the face of an unknowable and malevolent wilderness, like by by colonial standards, not ours, I think the Australian Bush rules. Or is it, is watching the movie, I got the idea that like the Australian Bush is indomitable against weird repressive Victorian attitudes and anything that goes up against it will eventually like get destroyed. I think both, I think both can exist, right? For... I guess the same reason it's this anxiety and fear of the bush because but also like the empire's grip on power um i think that because of colonialism i guess like i don't know I, I'm, I'm kind of developing a lot of thoughts at once because yeah like indigenous peoples have lived here for sixty thousand years they survived and yet the settler way of life is destroying ability to get food and is destroying like the coasts and erosion and all that stuff and i think that maybe you know there is danger to i guess the colonial project because of its own ignorance if that sort of makes sense like like you see now with like more and more we're hearing hey maybe we should like listen to local indigenous knowledge on how to like be custodians of the land because guess what turns out that like there's been so much knowledge about the spaces that we currently reside that we just totally ignored like in terms of brisbane there's records of the indigenous peoples here being like yeah you know this is like a floodplain and we can't like stay in this exact location at certain times so we go up here for a bit and then like return and it's fine for like quite a while so they were kind of just like and this is obviously an oversimplification but like they were just like yeah you don't want to build a whole fucking city here but you know white supremacy now we're going to build a city here on a fucking floodplain <laughs> like we're going to build houses like I, I filmed a lady recently whose house got destroyed uh, because it is explicitly in a area that like is known to yep. flood but they were just like nah fuck it we still got to build houses here because we need to sell parcels of land yep yep my house was flooded twice um in a period of like six weeks um years ago as a teenager very traumatic um but yeah so to answer your question i think it's both what about you what do you think um again i went into this thinking that like both wake and fright and in a way uh picnic at hang rock have this anxiety about australia about the australian bush about the outback as a space even though you know people have lived there for like over sixty thousand years and thrived in those spaces seems to me it's more like a lack of understanding of those spaces Mm -hmm. it occurred to me i've yet to see a film that really looks at the outback and those spaces as something that's like beautiful as something that can be understood and appreciated but picnic at hang rock does do that like the nature shots are really pretty at points like still eerie Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, but still kind of pretty. So I think maybe, maybe this isn't quite the perfect pairing, but it's still like quite a fun 
pairing of films like do a double feature of these movies they're both very good i think there is that apprehension around the wilderness but still an appreciation of it so in a way i think it's quite a forward thinking film in that respect yeah i I could see that too i could see an argument made for that too like interesting take yeah i guess the way it was shot it wasn't supposed to look fearful if that makes sense the overall composition of it i think makes it come together and look fearful you know the dissolves and working with the music to like oh yeah yeah it's like some of those shots like the big 360 shot are quite beautiful and then it's it's a beauty that kind of like draws you in to suddenly turn spooky i think that works really well to be both like hey isn't the australian wilderness neat but also like isn't it kind of eerie i think they are a good pairing because it's like in both films as well the villain isn't a villain if that makes sense like it's not something you can necessarily um point to obviously for different reasons like you know drinking culture and masculinity being the first villain in in wake and fright and this one is literally like something you can't point to because it's just they're just gone maybe there is something like supernatural and malevolent at hanging rock or is it just the fallout of these girls going missing coupled with like victorian psychosexual attitudes you know crushes everyone Mm -hmm. around them in the in the fallout and it's interesting as well like to be fair like there was a moment in um wake and fright where i was like is there like a weird magical quality to the yabba because he can't seem to get away like he (laughs) but no it's just beer that i guess sum it up as the hubris of humans (laughs) yep the hubris of humans in the face of terrifying but also kind of lovely australian outback yeah and we hope to talk more about it as we go on thank you for bearing with me uh i'm so sorry lucas that you'll have to edit this because i'm sure there are like there's probably going to be like an issue with flow and stuff like that maybe but um i'm sure i i hope our listeners enjoyed it and if any listeners have watched this film or do watch this film in preparation for this episode i'd love to know what you think like to answer lucas's questions like what do you think of the film what do you think it does or what story does it tell or do you have a different reading that you'd like to talk to us about um lucas will probably do an outro of where you can find us also before i go i don't know if you want to include this like in the housekeeping part another thing that happened was that i was on an episode of the podcast beyond the breakers i invited myself on to a maritime disasters podcast because that sounds very much like something i would do and um yeah i spoke to them <laughs> about the pasha Bolka incident um that occurred in newcastle in 2007 i had a whole lot of fun lots of laughter um those two folks are from America. Um, so yeah, I guess you could go visit their feed, give it a listen. Um, behind a paywall is the uncensored version. <laughs> Someone said that censoring the swearing of an Australian is like declawing a cat. The folks at Beyond the Breakers said it's no, it's just like putting a fine piece of art behind glass. Um, very smooth. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a good podcast in general, but I think If you want some more Australian content, um, head over there and listen. And I know that they're listeners of Australian Gothic as well. So it was really awesome. Shout out to, it's a very good episode. Shout out to friends of the show, Beyond the Breakers. Uh, I really enjoyed the episode. I'm glad. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining in, uh, listening to us today. I know this is probably on the longer side, but God, there was a lot to talk about. Um, Yeah, please tell us what you thought of Picnic at Hang Rock. I'm very excited to have these two films done because these first 
The first 10 episodes of this podcast are kind of like a little bit of a tapestry, a little bit of a collage, as we keep exploring like the darkness behind Australian culture. And now that these two films are out of the way, I think we can really sort of set the tone mm-hmm. of what we're looking at. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Josie, for watching these films with me and uh, continuing to explore the stuff. No, it's been so much fun. Um, I mentioned it in the Discord, but uh, obviously I've been enjoying doing this podcast anyway. It's nice to chat to a friend. I always love taking on new projects. I love the <laughs> I love the the scope of this podcast. Honestly, um, you know, I I don't know. It's so fun being like, well, one episode could be about a movie. The next one could be about fucking bluey fan theories. <laughs> I know that movie podcasts aren't for everyone, um, but I personally enjoy doing them. I'm glad that it's also like that. It's literally up your alley, but also in terms like for me. I was explaining on the Discord that part of my agoraphobia, um, so agoraphobia is like fear of feeling ang- anxious and anxiety. And as someone who is terminally anxious, that's often very hard to deal with. But one of the ways that manifests is that I avoid watching movies because I get anxious about not being able to, like, I'm worried I might not be able to hold focus or um, I'll need to pause it because I feel anxious. Um, which is couldn't be which me. Which is fine. And now that I realize, like, I can do that. I'm an adult. No one can stop me. But so I spend way more time avoiding watching a film or choosing a film that is will be whatever weird parameters I've set for the day. But having someone be like, "Okay, I need you to watch this film by this recording date." It's actually <laughs> really good. The less choice, the better in this one specific context. So thank you, Lucas. Uh, happy to help i'm sorry that we're gonna have to we've watched two very good films and you know as we get into further down the line of this podcast we are gonna watch some real fucking weird i can't wait (laughs) i i am a huge fan of like d grade horror so yeah try me well we will definitely be watching a movie where we get to see jackie weaver naked (laughs) alvin purple that seems that seems very deliberate on your part (laughs) Um, it is a very silly film. It is about a regular-looking guy who is just irresistible to women. It's incredibly stupid. It's incredibly sleazy. It's so Australian. That sounds amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, thank you, everyone, again, for listening to this episode. And, uh, yeah, thank you for, again, this amazing project and all being a part of it. Cheers. Bye. Hi everyone, just Lucas again with a few notes. Uh, my son did end up coming home the next day. He's been home since. We're very relieved and very happy to have him home. As Josie mentioned, you should check out Beyond the Breakers and their latest episode, which has Josie on it. You can find them on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We have a Discord you should join. There will be a link in the show notes for that. You can follow me on Twitter at Luxasm. You can follow Josie at JSSPCR. Don't forget to check out Josie's other podcast, uh, Hill to Die On. Uh, at a hill to die on pod thanks again for your patience i know this episode was a little bit late i was just having way too much fun with my baby son see you all next week for our next episode love you quite Quite intact. intact